drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, hello, it's... Season 2, Episode 45 of Drive-By Cinema, the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to. And in this case, you might be glad of that. Paul is <laughs> my yes. co-host. I co-host, Richard. I'm <laughs> nodding sagely here, or maybe like the Churchill dog, which doesn't look sage when it nods. nods. I, now, listen, I know it was quite a long time before you got it, but I'm wondering if you've tried what? out Puberty. your s- secret Santa Measles. Present. It's actually on my my dining room to-do table. List. No, it's actually on my dining room table. Uh, it was covered. I'd cleared out my my office space, yeah. which I showed you the other week. I uh-huh. confirm that it is quite clear now. Apologies for noises. Yeah, it's much better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did the same with my dining table, and I discovered your secret Santa. So no, I've not used it yet. <laughs> I don't know how. You've resisted ripping it open and having a go. That's what I would have done. I thought you were the perfect... Actually, clearly this is a perfect Secret Santa gift then. Because I bought you something which was funny for five minutes and now is of no use to you and it's just a white elephant and you're going to have to re-gift it at some point. (laughs) No, I want to use it. Apparently it's just pieces of paper that you take photos of. (laughs) Is that right? I mean, you're really selling it, aren't you? Now to the to the audience, it's not just pieces of paper that you take photos with, Paul. It oh. it's an entire ecosystem of note taking. I think there's an app you need to download, and it recognises symbols on the pages. Oh wow! Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, QR codes. Uh, well, something like that. Okay, right, Rich. Yeah, so tell me, tell me, tell me about everything you want to talk about. Look, uh, okay, corrections and omissions from last week, whatever that was. There were corrections and omissions. Oh, but not from last week. Adam, he mentioned some stuff. Thank you, Adam, for letting us know. I think Adam might have gone down with COVID himself, actually. I feel like It's it's coming back, COVID, this week or two. Definitely making a comeback. I think I've got it again because I really can't taste my coffee. And I could taste coffee even after I lost my senses. Lost my, sorry, my sense, my only sense, my sense of taste last time I got it. So I think I've come down with it this week also. Last episode, uh, we were both suggesting, why don't we get rid of all mozzies and midges, just eradicate them. Because it wouldn't affect the ecosystem, yeah. Well. Wrong. I don't know about that. Adam sent me two links to YouTube videos, at least one of which I must have seen before, because it's the kind of topic I like to watch and listen to things about. Yeah. On whether or not we can eradicate all mosquitoes, and so I plan, I do plan to watch them. I haven't yet, but maybe I'll put them as links somewhere on the show notes. That would be a good idea. He also talked about diacritics in word games. Yeah. In some languages, they're considered to be different letters. Uh, yeah. And in some languages, they're not considered to be different. How did he find that out? Don't know, but he said that a little with a little circle over it, a umlaut. And a zero with a line through, or an O, not a zero, an O with a line through the it. the same or, thing? No, in Nordic languages are considered different letters. Whoa. But uh, uh, in French, like an E acute is not considered a different letter. So there you are. That's amazing. What's the German word for the concept of having a special word in German that you don't have in your own mother tongue? 
I don't know. What is the, what is the I word? Don't, I don't know, but there's bound to be one, isn't there? Uh, and, and that's the word we're grappling for. <laughs> I was learning the Greek alphabet this, this week, actually. Oh, yeah. Alpha to omega. I found out I know most of it from studying relatively mathematical subjects. Yeah, because when you study science... When you study science, the guy teaching you very complicated things about, you know, dynamics and Yeah, stuff. decides not to do it in the com- lingua franca, the common tongue of whatever country you're in, like English, in England. No, no. Dive straight into Greek with, Greek, yeah. a, with a squiggle that you don't know the name of, which they'll then refer to as the name. Not as a squiggle, but as the name of the squiggle. That's right, yeah. It's fabulous, isn't it? It's a great way of introducing people to science, isn't it? Yeah. Um... And then you say, then they say things like, "Oh, it's a proxy. It's a proxy measure." Instead of saying it's a measure that's in lockstep. Yeah. So the refusal to use plain English, I think, is highly frustrating, and the refusal even to explain things in accessible—I'm not going to say Anglo-Saxon English, but in bits like you know, German words can you can break down into composite parts. You know, in in words that break down into meaningful bits. You know, I'm not, whether it's Norman French or Anglo-Saxon, I don't care. But you know, I, I find all that really frustrating about British scientific and mathematical culture. However, there is an argument that says you know because our number system is so arcane, not as arcane as the French who count sixty nineteen for the word seventy nine, don't they? <laughs> uh, uh, because our number system is so arcane, like we don't say 2T, uh, we say 20. We don't say 2-teen, we say 12, yeah. Uh, but also because uh, because of that. Because of that, we're not very good at maths. Is that what no, you're because that we're good at maths. Oh, and oh, because of our imperial system, yeah. Because we make it difficult in the extraneous cognitive load. When we get to the germane cognitive load, we've kind of strengthened our muscles. I think that's bullshit, you know. <laughs> like, if I've got to, if I've got to, you know, improve on Einstein's formulas, the fact I've got to do, you know, the fact I've got to take the car out of the car park, pay the valet, you know, pop down the news agents and renew my subscriptions, and then uh, go and babysit for three hours, all that extra work is not going to help me find a solution, is it? That's right. So we need the attentional equivalent of the bendy junction you can't quite see around that they build into inner cities these days. <laughs> We're back on Poundbury here, aren't we? Oh, well, yeah, Poundbury, yeah, which I think they did it intentionally. It's all built with steel. It's all built with modern concrete and steel girders. It's just, it's just got a, it's got a vernacular face here, hasn't it? That whole place. You know, although we give him stick, Charles has said that he thinks the Rwanda plan. This is the plan to send refugees and asylum seekers to Rwanda for the princely sum of um, 120 million to, to, I think, send 300 to Rwanda. Which, well, of course, isn't net. That's that's not net 300, because Rwanda sends loads of asylum seekers back to us because their human rights record isn't great. So, you know, isn't there the an old Indian be- trick in, in, you know, in the time of the Raj where they were breed cobras because they got rewarded for capturing them? That's right, yeah. They were given a reward for the snakes, so they just made cobra farms. Cobra farms. <laughs> I can see something really similar starting to happen here. Anyway, sorry, Rich, you were saying. Well, Charles has criticised this whole plan. There were people during the whole Brexit uh, debate who was saying, and people have been saying for a long time, haven't they, a certain type of person has been saying, well, you know, we can't have people coming over here. We can't have immigrants coming here because cause we're full, aren't we? <laughs> we're a small island and we're jolly well full. We can't have more people coming over here. And I'm sure I might have mentioned this before, but, you know, it's been a popular policy for the NHS to have 
like nurses from the Philippines. Yeah. You know, filling up the the jobs that we can't fulfill here. And also nursing homes too. Nursing homes, care homes, yeah, very important jobs. And you know, you might say you might say, Well, we're full, we can't have people coming over here. And of course, presumably I'm sure people think that, you know, the Philippines is not particularly densely populated. So, <laughs> you know, it makes sense that they stay there, doesn't it? And similarly, yeah. you know, Rwanda, it's a a country in Africa, a very big continent. Presumably Rwanda's an enormous country, plenty of space. So it makes sense that we can Rwanda's send people... actually really tiny, but anyway. ...to Rwanda. Well, here's the thing. What do you think the population density of the Philippines is? Do you think it's... Higher or lower than the United Kingdom? What would you guess, people? Uh, well, of course, most of it. Yeah, I mean, the outlying islands aren't necessarily habitable. Rather like Japan, you know. I mean, you can't really. I mean, you can't meaningfully take the population density of Japan with the ninety-two percent woodland and forest and mountains because we can't feasibly build on most Japan. Japan. Uh, and same for a lot of the Philippines. So whatever its density is, it's it's different. Well, whatever, the Philippines is rather similar. Whatever its de facto density, actually, its its practicable density is actually probably even higher. I would guess it's rather so on a Fi- par with the UK. The actually. Philippines population, which is about double, it is a large country population. The Philippines is one point three times as densely populated as the United Kingdom. Ah, I didn't. Oh, it's not that big. Yeah, it's only about right. twice as big as this, as area wise. I, I didn't know that. Indonesia's and big one, Rwanda, sorry. Paul. That makes sense. How about Rwanda? Okay. So, he, but it's got a small population, tiny. only thirteen million people in Rwanda. Tiny, tiny little thing. But it's so a tiny country. Rwanda's population density is one point eight three times that of the United Kingdom. Who would believe her? Not very sensible, you would argue, then, to be sending people to Rwanda, especially since population growth rate in Rwanda is two point six percent per year. Whoa. And in the Philippines, is 1.36. And in the UK, is only 0.56%. Well done, UK. Well done. <laughs> Representing. Another correction I might need to make from last week is oh. when we talked about the shotgun or something and blowing someone a long way away. You were right about that. I mean, I put shotguns to my shoulder and they don't blow you back. I said it was because of the law of conservation. I didn't specify which conservation. Uh, all of them? Momentum? Energy? I, yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I think it is true. I think most people might have assumed that, like, more directly, it's the law of action and reaction, which is one of... That's a force, not an energy, though. Tr- tr- well, yeah, but it amounts to the same when the work done, I guess, maybe, you could argue. So, I don't know. It's not a correction, but maybe it's just not... A, it, it is conservation of energy, no question. I mean, it that, that does apply. There's a Hamiltonian going on here somewhere, isn't there? I think. I mean... <laughs> don't um, say those words. <laughs> <laughs> I will go into apoplectic shock, Richard, if you remind me of those university days. Anyway, sorry, go on, carry on. Well, I was just going to say, I don't remember the order of Newton's laws of motion, nor the laws of thermo- thermodynamics. I don't remember like which one is number one and which one is number two. Okay. Uh, Newton's laws, right? Yes. The second one is F equals MA. Okay. The, f- the first one the... is a-, a body continues in rest or motion. There are three ways of stating it. 
Okay. Um, a station, uh, you know, f- from a, not a perspective, from a... Frame of reference. Viewpoint. Thank you. God, it's been so long. From a frame of reference, the stationary object will stay stationary unless it's acting on by a force. Okay. Zero. One. I mean, yep. From a, from a specific fixed frame of reference, an object moving... Uh, will continue at the same velocity, the same same speed in the same direction, i.e. the same velocity, unless it's acted acted upon by its force. Okay, that's still part of one. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then three uh, is every uh, action as an equal and opposite reaction. That's Newton's third, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, I don't think it's important to know the order of those, really, is it? Or the numbers? Does it matter? I mean, you just need no. to know them all, generally, don't you, to do? Not this year in GCSE, you don't know. You just need to know the first one, I think. <laughs> All oh, right, yeah. <laughs> it's all been cancelled. Not important, second and third. Goodbye. Let's burn Newton's books. Anyway, sorry, go on, carry on. Anyway, this is terribly off piste. And we're 27 minutes in, yeah. Sorry. Corrections and omissions. Final correction. And yeah. this is a biggie that I have to admit to is that I published last week's episode. Os masturbating. Under the name of Inland Empire. Which is this week's episode. Wow. And it was up there for, I don't know, half an hour before I noticed it. And then I I, I dashed in and changed it. But it doesn't matter because anyone who had updated their podcast at that moment has probably got that old episode name kind of frozen in their podcast. Yeah, if we ever become famous, you could sell that frozen podcast misnomer like a Beakle's bootleg. And so... Because I was very hurriedly editing that, I accidentally then republished it with the correct name, sort of, uh, The Trip, but with no space in between The and Trip. That mistake could be a valuable NFA, non-fungible asset. So there we go. I made two mistakes publishing the episode. But I also tipped everyone off as to this week's movie, which... Heavens, we must now talk about, surely. Well, we've been waylaying and... Delaying. For as long as we possibly <sighs> could. Here we go. That was the music. More music. Ten more seconds of music. Sufficient. Sufficient amount of elevator music to calm us down as we unshackle ourselves from the straitjacket. <sighs> I'm trying to talk in a calm, rational, sane way. About this nutty movie, Inland Empire, two thousand and six, from the redoubtable, David and very Lynch. very famous David Lynch. Yeah. Okay. This, I believe, is David Lynch's last sort of major motion picture, if you can call it that. In a way, this is David Lynch completely unhooked, isn't it? Without constraint. Notice how Richard doesn't say unhinged because he's respectful. No, he's I mean, it's not unhinged. It's, it's it's unhooked, you know. I mean. Yeah, he's been given free reign. Free There's method artistic. in the madness. He's got total artistic control, Paul. That's what I'm saying. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I'll be the one who mocks him for his sanity. I mean, this is not to say that it's the last thing he's done, because he's done more Twin Peaks since then, hasn't he? And uh, he's done short. I think he's done but he did everything. Films. The cinematography, the editing, the score, and the sound design were also by Lynch. It says from Reliable Source Wikipedia. And I don't know how many times I've now said this, but there comes a point when we're about to rent online for, <laughs> you know, a few pounds a movie. 
There comes a and Richard, decision. Oh, Richard never chooses SD. He always chooses HD. And then watches some videotaped nonsense this in film, HD. I did, exactly. I, I bought on. the HD version of a film made entirely on digital video co- camcorders. <laughs> From 2006. So, you know, 480 by 3, 320 or It just whatever. looks like I'm looking through a screen door. At some point, you think, wow, this would be a really beautiful movie if it hadn't shot it on home video. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would have been really epic if they just not shot it on home video. But he did that for a reason, and it was an artistic reason. So who are we to criticise? I'm sure, I'm quite sure that like, the freedom that it gave him just to pick up a camera, point it at his actors. And, and let it wobble, as he did, interestingly, <laughs> so many times. Uh, and, you know, he can put the camera in places he wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. And who is we an audience to expect accessible, <laughs> digestible, you know, entertainment of an evening from a movie? Well, we should know better. It's David Lynch, but there we go. Laura Dern is the star, and she's also a producer, I think, on this film. The other producer is his wife. You know, Laura clearly believes in him, because she was in the... She was in a lot of Lynch stuff. She was in Blue Velvet, yeah. She was in Dune. I don't remember in Dune. She is really young. She's only 55. She was in Twin Peaks as well. Yeah, she's in Twin Peaks. And Mulholland Drive. Look, so... And the straight story. Yep. She has, as you say, she's been in quite a few things. And she's a fabulous actor, actress. There's no doubt about that. Oh, yeah. She does an amazing job in this film. I mean, and it's really quite a, a difficult film to have acted in, I'm sure. I'm guessing it's a really difficult film, if you're an actor, to to actually know what's going on so you know how to act kind of thing. However, there was no screenplay for this movie, just a storyline. It doesn't show, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how we're going to summarise this film. I don't know how we're going to spoil it. I, I, look, I actually think this one is beyond summary. So I'm, I'm suggesting that we don't go through it <laughs> in linear sequence. Mostly because, I mean, some of the conceits it centres around are all about things not following, aren't they? I mean, it, really? Is it, that's a level of sort of semantic meaning that <laughs> I would love to have about this film. <laughs> well, look, after, you know, after... After I finished watching this and was later discharged from the psychiatric unit, <laughs> uh, I, I took it upon myself to learn about this movie. Me too, me too. And so I read several synopses. Right. Uh, and synoptic summaries of what they thought Lynch wanted us to think and what Lynch was thinking. Kind of. Yeah. So, and they're all highly divergent. Nobody agrees. So, I mean, this is the point. <laughs> like Mulholland Drive was an exercise in making us think about Hollywood, what Hollywood actually is at its core, mm. and how how stars view their own realities, maybe, or something like that. Did you not think, and I think I might have heard someone say this, that this is really just like a retread of Mulholland Drive? It is. If you, but this one is more about... I mean, if you thought... What does the audience expect from a movie... And what assumptions in following movie conventions does the audience and the filmmaker conspire to allow that suspension of disbelief to occur? 
And, you know, we see the balloon pop on several occasions in this movie where we're taken into a fantasy and out of an actress and into an actress's character all seamlessly. And somehow it's supposed to mean something, but I don't know if it does. If you thought, well, Mulholland Drive was good, but it could do with being three hours long and less coherent, <laughs> then I think this movie <laughs> <laughs> would be perfect for you, wouldn't it? It would. But there's like... like the English language version of mathematics. You know. <laughs> There, there one plus is. two one equal three one, you know, in any other language. <laughs> there uh. is a kind of story going on here. But uh, uh, Laura Dern is an actress at the start. She gets Playing visited by that weird Polish woman. Oh, sorry, in the movie she's an actress. So Laura, Laura Dern is an actress in real life, <laughs> playing an actress, actress in the film. Yeah, Who at one point in the movie plays an actress? I, I think so. Who's become a whore? I think. Not entirely sure. But, I mean, we know that from Mulholland Drive that David Lynch views, you know, actors or actresses, certainly, as having to prostitute themselves at some level to be in Hollywood at all, don't they? Yes. I mean, it wasn't made clear in Mulholland Drive that he thinks that they should all all be in Poland when they're being a prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) But that was on a movie set, or was it, or was it not? We don't know. Was it from a different time, or was it the scary old Polish woman? Was it just her backstory? I don't know. I can't tell. And I have to watch three or four times to even get close to those questions. But, you know, Mulholland Drive, the nature of prostituting yourself, we all do it to some extent, don't we? Our time is precious, our bodies are precious, and our minds are precious, and our emotions are precious. We give them up to our jobs, okay? So, you know, on the analogical level, yes. But, you know, more so in Hollywood, waiting tables, doing that because you really don't want to because you're in close proximity to Boulevard. You know, we can we can see that desperation is being prostitution of a certain sort. But I mean, I mean, but I think Lynch here in this movie, when she becomes a hooker, uh, is it operating on that on that level or is, is, is she actually becoming a hooker? I don't know. So at the start of the film, she's getting a part with a film directed by Jeremy Irons, who's an earnest mm-hmm. director. And he's telling the story about this film that had was a, effectively it was a reshoot or a reboot of an older movie. It's, it's an old German movie, yeah. And apparently it's cursed. But he doesn't know this. He hasn't told the actress, actress and act, actor at this it's point. It's got a name with blue in the title. And of course, blue has got all kinds of significance for David Lynch, doesn't it? As you say, there is some kind of curse. The old movie didn't get finished. Perhaps. That's right. And the actors all died. The actors all died. I guess that's perhaps more important for the actors than this one. <laughs> there is a really cool bit that I enjoyed in this movie. And it may surprise you to mm-hmm. learn that. But there's, it's a bit where they're doing the, the reading, the seated reading of the scripts in the movie yeah. studio. And Laura Dern shows what a good actress she is. Well, she does that all the time, doesn't it? Doesn't she? But... There's a very weird moment where I, I, they're disturbed, I think, are they, by a noise? And yeah. her other... Plot spoiler. The other actor oh, gonna pl- uh, who's played by Justin Theroux, and we've seen him in another in Mulholland Drive as well, didn't we? He sort of gets out of his seat. He, he says, there's somebody back there. There's somebody back there in the, in the props. Oh, that's right. And he goes, and we learn later that he's seeing... Laura Dern's character, I think he's called Nicky. He's the character in the story that they're about to play. Yeah, and he sort of sees her in the 
the set or the the stuff that's been in this. So, you know, either this is fundamentally deep, you know, her character has come to life in a metaphorical sense and is now inhabiting the real world of the actress, you know. I'll be talking about, you know, the method acting and that kind of thing. Or or is he just extrapolating what is an aha, aha take on me video and making it something <laughs> bigger than it actually is? This scene yeah. gets repeated later in the movie, doesn't it? When we're... Sort of another yeah. layer deep when she's in this other realm or this other world in Poland, fundamentally, I think. And that might have looked good, but it's done in Betamax, so it doesn't. <laughs> <look> <laughs> they might say, wow, it's better than Tenet, the way it all ties up, but no, because it's Betamax, so we can't appreciate it on a, on a technical level. It is his Christopher Nolan moment. You're right. Quite right. That seems to be what it's doing. Yeah, so the film that they're filming is called On High in Blue Tomorrows. Nice name. It's beautiful. I also appreciated in that scene that Jeremy Irons complains about a terrible cup of tea because he's in Hollywood and they don't know how to make tea in Hollywood. <laughs> and there's lots of semi-grimy, semi-Hollywood film set industrial kind of Edward Hopper moments that David Lynch does. You know, the slow dialogue, the silence, the noise of the city and, you know, some well-chosen locations. So if you want to separate in in atmospherics you know this is a great movie if you just want to switch off and flow with it for three 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 hours uh and you've got nothing better to do then sure jump on board and watch the movie however it will frustrate you at every step because it it doesn't i can't make any sense of it richard please tell us what it's all about (laughs) you can't lay that on me for fuck's sake (laughs) <laughs> but we're all frustrated they try to talk and replot synopsis at the same time here. no I mean you know at some point I don't know which way it is but you know her character and herself collide before this there's a warning shot that her co-star is a bit of a lech and that he goes for every leading lady and has his way wiki way and discards them and his entourage say look you've got to stay away from her like she's a famous actress but more than that her husband's somebody big and dangerous. You don't want to try and seduce her. Anyway, they get together, is that right? Yeah, they have sex at some point. But also, don't we see his wife, the actor's wife, and she winds yeah. up... There's a scene with her being interviewed by a cop. Really weird scene. No, no, that's somebody in the film, right. I think. But they're all in the film, isn't, aren't they? No, but... That's. I think that's supposed to be a character in the movie okay, they're that, making. That's I'm not clear. entirely sure. She says she's going to kill someone. It's not clear. No, it's not clear. This is what it says in this synopsis. She says she's going to kill someone with a screwdriver. And then she says she's killed lots of people. But, but, but then she. Oh no, that's that's Laura's character. But then she I can't exposes remember. her midriff, and there's a bandage, and under the bandage, the screwdriver is impaled in her. Now, that sounds like a little twist in the tale, doesn't it? It sounds like a little Aesop's fable. To begin with, just as Laura, her her, her character, gets the role, uh, and she's living in this sort of Southern American, uh, Southern States kind of mansion, glorious kind of semi-colonial mansion with, a obviously, a husband who works in whatever. Uh, there's a knock on the door, and a strange kind of, not quite bag lady, but like random, you know, Florida... Early, you know, Winterberg kind of tourist, kind of East European She's woman. Clearly Polish, in. Paul. So, you know, I'm yeah, clearly Polish, and looks like she might be homeless and lost. But rich, who knows? 
uh, and she says, you know, I'm your new neighbour. And then she delivers a conundrum to Laura's character. What, what was the conundrum? The first conundrum was the young man walks out of his house. As he walks out of his house, he stares in a mirror. The reflection gives birth to evil. I think that's a reference to the bit where they're in the studio and they see a reflection. They call it a reflection, don't they? I think I was indicating that that's where, don't know. where the evil comes into the whole thing and then they have an affair, something like that. The second one is the young woman walks through the messy market and and the path to the palace is through the back route of the market or some such. Something, something anal sex? I don't don't know. (laughs) Who knows? Uh, Or it may be that you've got a backstab and, you know, and kill and do whatever and, and, and all kinds of things to get where you want to go. I don't know. But it's all about appearances not being quite what they seem, which I think might be a general theme of this whole Harry thing. Dean Stanton, an actor making sort of cameo or an appearance in this film, he, of course, yeah. is sort of a cult hero actor. He was in Alien, wasn't he? Was the That's guy right, yeah. in the baseball cap. Uh, in this film, he plays Freddy, who I think is the, uh, the director's sort of assistant. And he asks the cast... For money all the time, doesn't he? <laughs> there is a joke in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he he sort of gives sort of hard luck story and gets money off Laura and Justin's character, and then he she overhears him doing the same with other crew members later on. <laughs> well, we do get glimpses of an old Hollywood and the casting couch and all these things cast in a in in, in you know in quite. Quite a diffuse Edward Hopper kind of light, you know. Um, I think that is Lynch's strong, is his strong suite, isn't it? He's not quite sure of conscious, but it's kind of a loose connectivity of impressions and atmosphere. Whatever the movie's about, I mean, you can't deny that it's an atmospheric movie that kind of works on that level, you know, on a, on a visual and sonic level. It, it kind of makes the sounds of Hollywood and that disjointedness somehow makes it more. Atmospheric, and of course, despite the fact that he's filming entirely on digital video cameras, it's full of like old Hollywood stuff. You know, they're doing scenes, and people shout, "Check the gate!" after the, the scene. Do you know what that's about? Check the gate. No idea. So, the idea behind that, I believe, this is my understanding. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Is on an old film camera, right? Of course, once you've exposed the film, once the scene is run. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I'm going to say? No, but you're right. About that. <laughs> Once the film is run, you don't you, you don't know that it, it's taken, right? You can't see it. It's got to be developed. You got to take it to Boots, you know, and get yeah. it back at best within an hour, but probably in a few days, right? Because it's film. It's film emulsion and stuff. You can't, so you don't know that you've got the the scene. But one of the things they could check was whether or not the gate, which I think is the bit that when the shutter is open that exposes the film at the back, you know, it's like the, the thing. Oh, the film flaps through that yeah, it's, bit, yeah. Well, it's what light comes through. I suppose ultimately it's, it, oh, the it's, light what, comes through. It, it's what makes the shape of the cinema screen effect- effectively, you know. But yeah. anyway, the, if there is a hair in the gate, then you would see it on screen. And if you've seen an old film where they 
had this problem. The hair kind of flutters around at 25 frames per second, doesn't it? As it gets buffeted by the mechanism in the camera. And so at the end of recording a scene in old Hollywood, they would shout, check the gate, and someone operating the camera would presumably open it up and check there was no no foreign body in the mechanism that would have been... Oh, wow! And I think... You know, That's long nice after story. that became a real problem, it was just a thing that they said, probably, which probably just means make sure the fucking thing has been, you know, there was film in the camera and that everything else was hunky dory. There's a point at which, just around that scene in that that we that rehearsal scene where they see a reflection, that she winds up in a sort of allegorical mind house in Poland, which you think is. <laughs> part of the part of the film it might or might not be part of the movie. <laughs> we also what we've yeah. also failed to mention is at several stages during this film, Lynch interjects scenes from something we've talked about before, which is David Lynch's <laughs> rather amazing and as far as I understood, completely separate and standalone project. Did you think that three hours wasn't quite enough for this movie? I thought, oh, just put some extra footage in <laughs> Yeah, there. I've got some rabbits footage that we really desperately need to see in this film. I mean, he's right, it needs a bigger audience. Rabbits is amazing. I just didn't really understand exactly how it fit in. <laughs> okay, so... Yeah, go on, Rich, go on. I'm pretty sure Rabbits was made before this film, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. So, did he already have this film in mind? No, it can't be true, can it? No, but I mean, because, I mean, Rabbit is just very ominous and portentous anyway. You could fit it into any kind of David movie and it would somehow <laughs> reflect yeah. on the characters. Because, I mean, I, mean, his, I mean, particularly Twin Peaks, slow delivery of very little dialogue was his trademark and that's all Rabbits does, just to the power <laughs> of, to the power of Bixomatosis. But, <laughs> Like, uh, so, yeah, what I want to say is the first half is we stay pretty much in Laura, Laura Dern's actress's world. Yeah, she has, she gets off with her co-star, her husband finds out, they have an argument, and then some other female turns up at the house, the big sort of colonial, post, you know, big colonial mansion. And then we go to Poland. Yeah. And then we're kind of told... Kingsley says, you know, oh, by the way, we finished shooting. It's all finished. You know, there is this thing about being in Poland. She's hanging around with a bunch of prostitutes. She seems to have a, a Polish husband who, at one point, they're out having a barbecue. But she's in modern-day Poland, isn't she? Hanging around with prostitutes. I think so, yeah. But anyway, he tells her he's going to join the circus. What was all that about? <laughs> is that another Hollywood allegory? <laughs> it must be. Again, another riddle. Then she winds up going back to Hollywood somehow. She goes to Billy's house. That's the act, the, the actor she's working with. Because she was only in Poland in a movie. And she meets his wife and kid. And the wife calls her Susan, I think, which is the name of the character That's in the film. Right. Character. She makes a scene. So therefore, it's not Billy's. Re- it's not Billy's real wife. It's the, his wife. In the movie. She makes a bit of a scene. She gets slapped. And at this point, I wrote in my notes, I, lo- I looked at the clock 
how far through we were. <laughs> oh no! No, it's hour just two hour hours hour in, hour and there's one hour still to go. <laughs> and I just wrote, "I'm done here." Now I did buy it on YouTube, and on YouTube, fortunately, unlike uh, Amazon Prime, you can speed it up a little bit. <laughs> how would that have helped? Now, it wasn't really a move. Wasn't really a problem with David Lynch because there isn't very much dialogue. However, I did find it just became unwatchable at one point five. I watched it at 1.25 when I realised I was on YouTube wow. and could do that. I mean, okay. I don't know whether I would make it more or less bearable. Less. <laughs> and then I, I thought, I can't watch it like this because the sound's going to speak it. So I, then I had to put it back on normal speed. There's a scene, another good scene here. Actually, an amazing scene. You could argue it's the best scene in the movie. She winds up on the street. I think it's Hollywood Boulevard because it's the Walk of Fame, right? She's hanging out with the prostitutes on the street. Now, this is the best. This is the pivotal. This is the crowning, it defining is, yeah, moment yeah. of the movie, isn't it? She, she's, she has a screwdriver in her hand. We've seen it before. It was that woman who was stabbed had it. And, but I guess you assume that's going to happen again. Billy's wife, or Devon's wife, or whoever she is, comes up, snatches the screwdriver. She stabs Laura Dern with it. And she's we know where she is exactly because you see the sign. She's on Hollywood and Vine. She goes and lays down in a shop doorway. On the golden... On the, on the Walk of Fame. Walk of Fame, sorry. Yeah, she bleeds on one of the stars, that which is... I mean, that's significant in itself. Symbolic, isn't it? But she lies down with some... Well, I, descriptions say rough sleepers. I mean, I think there's one rough sleeper, and there's a couple there who I'm not sure... Yeah, who I'm not sure addicts, they're rough sleepers. Yeah. Well, I suppose they are. They're crackheads. Uh, yeah. and, but... The, the rust sleeper is uh, a, a black lady. Yeah, I want to get to my sister's kind of thing. Her sister is in Fresno or something. Pomona. She's in Pomona. Uh, what you say about Pomona? Pomona. Pomona. She talks about the bus timetable. Oh, and then the couple, the Japanese, the Japanese girl, uh, who either is a tourist gone astray, or something like that, and is now being pimped, or they're a happy couple and they're just out for some crack. I don't know. But uh, the way she speaks indicates that she's not American-Japanese. Uh, and she says, well, you can get to Pomona from here. And, of course, they have a big, interesting sort of sidelined uh, discussion about this. Presumably this is laden with meaning, meaning, you know. Yes, if you're from Hollywood. I'm slightly uncomfortable with the notion that the black homeless woman is sort of the, you know, mystic black person kind of trope, like the magical black guy kind of trope but yes. she says to Laura Dan's character you dying lady but you know she kind of calms her down you know don't matter kind of thing and at some point Nikki yeah. vomits blood I think again onto the star and someone says no more blue tomorrows but not before the Japanese lady has told a story about her best friend who's now a hooker with a giant blonde uh. wig Resemblance to the girl dying next to her. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. She can walk down all the best boutiques, not be suspected, because she looks so good and so classy and, you know, gets to do all the tricks with the rich That's guys. That's right. Yeah. But at the phrase, no more blue tomorrows, it's like, cut, check the gate. Everybody applauds. And it's a scene in the movie. And we've sort of snapped back out to the top level reality or something. But during that scene, that long kind of pan, Laura's watching. Herself, isn't she? Is she just she goes into a cinema and yes. sees herself on screen? No, she she watches herself. She hides oh. 
behind lampposts and follows herself down the road as she's acting or being. It appears it. She's only acting when when the direction is cut. Yes. Yes. So she's the person that's been hiding behind the sets. I checked the time at this point again. 25 minutes left still. (laughs) So the point I couldn't resolve is when they yell cut, is it the girl who's died who's died? No, because she wakes up from the film set floor and stands up. So what about the other Laura? Her real is she the real character, or is this all part of the movie where she's playing two people in the movie? You see, and what's this supposed to say about mental health? What's this supposed to say about the minds of actors? I don't know. Well, then there's that other terrible, weird scene where she follows that guy, the office guy up the stairs, and yeah. she shoots him or something, and his face kind of contorts and turns into Laura Dern's face wearing that. She, Laura Dern pulls off this expression throughout this movie. The Phantom. You mean the Phantom? The yeah. Phantom. How do you know his name? The fuck? It's <laughs> in my notes. I don't know where I got it from. But Laura Dern has got this expression that she pulls off throughout this movie. I think it's the expression we'd all have if David Lynch was directing you in this movie. It's kind of like a, a, a sort of slack-jawed, open-mouthed frown of confusion. Like... <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> then uh, Laura's character meets like the the woman who's lost, and they share a kiss. Oh yeah, we saw this woman. We didn't bother to mention it. Way, way, way back, three hours ago, at the start of the movie, I think she was sitting on a on a bed. Presumably, she's a Polish prostitute. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And then, at the at the end, there's a weird montage of scenes where characters from lots of different Lynch films, <laughs> including Mulholland Drive, and all the prostitutes sort of arrive and say hello. And, and they dance yeah, to Nina Simone. Dance, yeah. Like a musical number at the end. Which is pretty old Hollywood in itself, isn't it? Okay. Well, I, I don't think we can go into more of the plot, because we seem to have forgotten most of it, like bits of it, hopefully. That snapshot... It's that snapshot, that freeze frame of different parts has helped listeners to make sense of this. When asked about Inland Empire, and I'm, I'm quoting directly here from online sources, Lynch refrained from explaining the film, responding that it is about a woman in, it is about a woman in trouble, and it's a mystery. And that's all I want to say about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. When presenting his movie to audiences, Lynch sometimes offers a clue in a form of a quotation from the Briatarakia. Upanishad, which I think is a Hindi or Hindu sacred text. We are like the spider. We weave our life and then move along in it. We are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives in the dream. This is true for the entire universe. So we make our own dreams and our dreams come true. You dream what you, you dream in reality and your reality is your dream. Yeah. Okay. Is he saying anything more fundamental than that? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, who knows? And Frank left the three hours. Who fucking cares? It's indulgent, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not saying it isn't without merit. You know, it, it did make me think about some of the things yeah. I think he's meant to make you think about. Inevitably, makes you think about the nature of Hollywood, what reality is in Tinseltown, and what reality. You know, because you you see these people, you say, "Oh, come on, you know, get real. You know, stop watching so many movies in your life." Um, <laughs> 
or, you know, that's not real life, you know. And uh, what is real life, you know? It's focusing on the concrete. It's focusing on what is visible any more real? Well, probably not, you know. And uh, I think this idea has been touched in movies before in Hollywood, uh, but certainly perhaps most memorably and perhaps more accessibly, Barton Fink, I think, I'll show you the life of a of life of the mind, where the kind of the the professional wrestler who's gone insane just gets so annoyed by this little upstart 1950s intellectual, right? You know, writing his screenplays and being self important. That you know, he just goes crazy and tries to hack him to death. And Barton Fink is left satting, left sat on a beach just outside Hollywood, contemplating, contemplating the sh- the sea, and obviously just having lost his mind completely. And I thought, you know, that more accessible way of approaching the idea of a mutated reality that exists in Tinsel Tinseltown, I thought that movie did it better than Lynch. I think Lynch is trying to go too deep. Whatever he's saying, and I'm not doubting he doesn't have a framework of value in his own mind, this kind of loose association we're presenting it in terms of riddles and clues just doesn't work. And and I think depth is lost as a result of that for the majority of viewers. I mean, it, it's a state of bleeding, obviously, it feels too long. Maybe it's not. I mean, maybe it's as long yeah. as it needs to be, but I didn't find myself completely engaged with it all the way through. <laughs> How are you? Are you the kind of person that can relax into a movie and just enjoy however long it is? Because I'm not. You know, I want to get through it, a, mo- a movie. And so this probably wasn't the movie made for me, was it? certainly wasn't the movie made for me. I mean, maybe if I was in a different mood. Have you seen Bad Influence? Starring the Brat Packer that no, Robbie Lo- Rob Lowe. Because uh, he, he got, before me too, he got he got in trouble for something. Uh, and he was kind of cancelled back then. Uh, and James Spader, is it James Bacon, James Khan, James Spader, James Khan, Kevin Bacon, James, no, not Kevin Bacon, but another Brat Packer. And they did a beautiful take on kind of like late eighties, early nineties, kind of Los Angeles credit card subculture. I, you know, the kind of uh, DKMY fashioned subculture for the rich out there. And that touched on this netherworld of perceptions and, and realities and, you know, how how night and day places can be. Uh, but again, was very conventional in his filmmaking. So really, I, I think if you're going to explore these these themes, and I, I don't think David Lynch wants the audience to engage in a specific way, but if you do want the audience to engage them, uh, not on your terms, but in a specific way, I think the more... The more traditional or graspable elements of filmmaking you can include, the better. But Lynch just plays with this, doesn't he? You know, he plays with who we think the actor is and who we think the character is in a film of an actor playing a character. You know, and that's why we get this double take of her spying on herself and that kind of thing. Uh, it's kind of like through the looking glass, and we're supposed to be confused about if we're hoping for her or hoping for her character's drama to evolve and he's saying clever things about how narrative is spun not just in Hollywood movies but in Hollywood itself uh, and how those narratives become a reality but I don't really know what we're supposed to take from this movie at all which is good I, I think he wants to inject a level of beneficial confusion doesn't he? Surely 
Oh, well, he achieved that. <laughs> and, you know, that's the thing. I think David Lynch would be pretty proud of this as an accomplishment. And I think it is probably an, a, a piece of work that's uncompromised. I think that's good. I mean, people who are big David Lynch fans, I think they do rate this film. And I'm glad that it exists and that he's able to make it. But I don't it's think, not enjoyable, yeah, I don't is think it? you would enjoy it. Yeah, I, I... And beyond enjoyable, it's not pleasing, is it? Because pleasing is a different thing. It's, it's, it's not really It has its pleasing. moments, though. It does have its moments. I think we could score it, couldn't we? Fairly. Yeah. Okay, we've got acting. We've got the usual plot. <clears throat> uh, what's our third category going to be, Rich? Mood. Mood. And the fourth one, deconstruction of cinematic <laughs> codes. I've chosen that one for you. Thank you. Is that okay? I can work with those, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's go. I mean, Laura Dernan produces an amazing performance. There's a, there's a bit Super where she just again, cries yeah. during the rehearsal and throughout working with the loosest of scripts or ideas or, you know, who knows what was going on. Yet she manages to portray this troubled woman. You know, there's no one really weak in here. I mean, it's got to be an eight for the acting. A very memorable performance from her. I, I think you've already pointed out that there's a particular really good section of her acting when they're reading. I think they've already done yes, casting, yeah. haven't they? They've been chosen the part and they're reading through That's the right. script, which this movie has, unlike, unlike the movie <laughs> we're actually watching and talking. Uh, and she is just superlative, you know, the way she acts. It, it is just amazing. So, and she's great throughout. I mean, she has to play a harangued, harried, and often looks she looks quite malnourished and, and tired woman, doesn't she? Both the actor that she's playing and the character that the actor that she's acting is also playing. Uh, and I can't really fault everybody else is you know very very competent and, and some great performances. I thought her husband was was nicely threatening, uh, quite scary in a rich man kind of way. So I'm going to score it nine for acting. Hmm. All right. Plot, Paul. Yeah. Thanks for letting me go first on this one. To the extent it's obvious, he doesn't want us to explore this as a traditional linear parallel or even, you know, Buckminster <laughs> Fuller-esque plot, like Shortcuts might be by Robert Altman. Uh, whatever kind of traditional circuitry you could establish for a plot, he just doesn't want that to happen. He wants time, he, you know, he wants he wants time-space to collapse, space-time to collapse even. I guess you call it time space in which case. Uh, and, you know, he wants warp speed to occur. All kinds of plot black holes are there. And I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of that is intentional. It is enjoyable to a certain extent to try to get yourself out of these rabbit holes and therefore think about what why he's constructed it in this way. But it stops being enjoyable when it gets too hard to do. And it stops being enjoyable because the movie is three hours long. So in terms of plot and what he wants to do with plot, I'm going to have to score it. I'm sorry. A rather desultory 6.5. I mean, on the one hand, we said several times that it was long. It feels too long in a lot of ways. You're going to stop, probably. I'm sure you didn't watch it in one sitting. Uh, four sittings. <laughs> Okay, I'm not that bad, Paul, but I, I I did get up and do stuff at one point. When I say four sittings, each of those was broken and punctuated by rests. But at the same time, if you miss a bit of this, you're not going to get the effect. You're not going to really understand uh, what you know 
I missed what? quite a lot of it. I wasn't, I, and I watched it all. My eyes presumably saw it all, but I wasn't paying attention. But you know, you need it all to have the faintest idea of what's going on. But the faintest idea is the maximum you'll ever get. Then it should be presented as a very, 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 very serious piece of work that you really, really, really have to pay attention to. I'm going to score this a four for plot. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to go hide. Okay, third one was your mood and yeah. atmosphere. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Listen. Would this film be better if it was playing in a modern art gallery and everyone had to stand in a slightly darkened room looking at the screen? Yeah, yeah. well, that's what it is. You know, that's what I'm saying. You know, he needs to say this is a very, very, very serious work of art. He needs to present it in a context that isn't, you know, Amazon Prime <laughs> or YouTube. Yeah, quite right. No, serious context. I mean, he presents rabbits in the, he presents rabbit in a yes. certain context, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. And it's clear that it, you know we're not watching a sitcom, and we're not watching a spoof or a satire or a parody of a sitcom. It, it, it's clear that we're watching art of a certain kind. That's we're there to think about what happens in a sitcom and why we're responding to sitcoms in a sitcom. And, and you know those rabbits clips, as we say, they do demonstrate his complete mastery of being able to menace with kind of no, nothing at all. With nothing, yeah, he, he, you know, he's brilliant. But he started out with Twin Peaks, you know, and doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. But here, yeah, I mean, he 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 can say a lot with very little, uh, but he doesn't do that in a terse or concise way because it's 180 minutes. I'm not saying a lot with with not quite so little this time. The mood, you know, the Edward Hopper Edward Hopper oil painting kind of side to the grubby side of Hollywood. You know, I, he captures, but he's captured that before, hasn't he? Uh, so for mood, I'm going to score it at seven point five. Mm. Yeah, it does leave a strong aftertaste, so it is certainly worth a seven for mood. Yeah, no question. Okay, final final thing: deconstruction <laughs> of cinematic codes. You seem to have missed a very pivotal moment here, where she's watching herself as she walks down, you know, Hollywood Boulevard, wherever it is, Sunset Boulevard, you, to get stabbed, uh, Paul, or having been stabbed. You wouldn't. If I held a knife to your throat, you wouldn't swear that that had happened, I'm sure. <laughs> Unless you'd read it in a synopsis. How do you mean? Are, are you certain that's ha- that, that you saw that in the film? Absolutely. Not that you imagined absolutely. it or dreamt yeah. it, perhaps, dozing off. No, well, I, 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 let's cue corrections next <laughs> okay. week. Okay, well, one of us has to go back and watch it. Either her character acts seeing watching her character in... The movie this movie but it, it, is about, yeah. hmm. or her real self in some sort of way is imagining her character, or her character is being watched by herself as she's preparing for the role, and her real self is actually really a hooker <laughs> on Sunset Boulevard, or it's something or else. Or she's a failed actress who had to turn to prostitution. Or, yes, or the Phoebe hypothesis, the alternative Phoebe hypothesis from Friends. Phoebe is not part of the friendship group. She's just a, you know, a crackhead baghead outside. The whole of Friends is her fantasy about how she could be friends with these people. It's a you know, Jacob it's Ladder scenario. Is it, is it Phoebe's dying thought? I don't think it is. the entire series. Yes, of that's, it. that's it. Yes, the alternative Phoebe hypothesis, uh, conjecture, proposal. Yeah, so... It doesn't deliver because it's meant to confuse rather than provoke us with 
asking us to choose between three options here. You know, what's going on here? A, choose A, B, or C. You know, it's not clearly presented like that, obviously, intentionally. Uh, and either you think it gains from that if it was presented, you know, in bright white walls in an art gallery, or perhaps on YouTube, it, it possibly possibly loses from that, loses something from its lack of focus in in clearly stating the questions that it wants us to be confused about. Whereas we just end up confused about the questions we're supposed to be confused about. And for that reason, it does deconstruct in somatic codes and what we expect of a character and what we expect of an actress playing the character and those realities. It does that well, but it doesn't communicate it well. So for me, I'm going to have... It would have been a 10, but I'm going to have to score it 8. I don't think it deconstructs Hollywood as well as Mulholland Drive does because no. it doesn't... It's not as cogent, is it? It doesn't. It doesn't say anything quite as pointed about it. It says something fluffy mm. about you know characters, actors, what's real, what's not. Maybe, maybe there's some exploitation going on of the actress involved, but I, I don't know. I can't tell you which bit is real. So, yeah, I mean, Mulholland Drive is very much like Blake's poem London, isn't it? It's a love. It's a love hate thing that goes on at the same time. Whereas this. Is just a blare, I think. This is Smash TV sets out in the Arizona desert, and it is it is performance art. I don't doubt it. You know, whereas Mulholland Drive is a pipe by Magritte. You know, or is it a pipe? Yeah, this gets a five from me for deconstruction. Okay, I'm going to take it down. Having heard you, to seven point five. Well, let's do an overall score poll. Still still respectable oh, really? for me, I'm afraid. I don't oh, know why wow. I'm saying this, because I really didn't enjoy it. It wasn't pleasant. It was it was a concrete cesspit to trudge <laughs> through. But I still have to score it 7.5. No, 7. It's seven. good that it exists, I grant you. It is great art, but I don't know what kind of art it is. Yeah. I'm going to have to go 5, I think. I don't, I, I, I don't have the heart to... <sighs> Score it less than five, but I can't wholeheartedly recommend it because of its failings uh, or challenges. Let's call them challenges. No, I, I would call three hours failings. <laughs> it does say in the IMDb trivia that David Lynch advertised this film by sitting in the middle of Hollywood with a big <laughs> billboard sign saying, for your consideration, Laura Dern and holding a real cow. Yes. When they say holding real cow, presumably, I mean, like, by the Well, lead. he had it, like, on a, on a tether. Yeah, yeah. This was to get her nominated for either the the Oscars or the other one. Yeah. Golden Globe, yeah? I don't think she... She was, was she? No, she wasn't. Which is not really surprising. It was 2001, 2006, you know. 2006, it intellectual. Yeah. You know, it was an intellectual time back then. Even Margaret Atwood still used to write novels, didn't she? The Booker Prize was still something. All that stuff's disappeared from our cultural horizon, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, we don't get The Late Show on BBC Two anymore. The Booker Prize doesn't exist in media presentation format. Serious movies simply don't get on Netflix or... You know, you have to search for these. Whereas... You know, the world cinema aspect of HMV was omnipresent, wasn't it? You couldn't really avoid it. So, well, so, yeah. on IMDb, the top review is titled, Is it brilliant or rubbish? Well, for my money, it's both and worth seeing <laughs> regardless, which is a pretty good way of describing it. Yeah. 
And in the FAQ, the top question, which made me laugh the instant I saw it, was, can someone explain this film? (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, if you picked up somebody's camcorder and looked at it, you looked at the results, or you skimmed through somebody's, you know, Insta videos on their phone. (laughs) Then it would look like this, yeah. (laughs) It would look like this. Uh, And, of course... Back when art was still had a serious aspect to it, you know, late 80s, early 90s, novelists used to write their novels like this, didn't they? You know, multiple, <laughs> multiple narrators, multiple perspectives, and, you know, a little jigsaw for the reader to work out. Kind of. But it always kind of used to work out, didn't it? Whereas this doesn't work out to it. Let's try again, shall we? Let's go for another movie. <sighs> Can I just, are we, is it over with? Is it ever coming back, Daddy? Tell me the monster's never coming back. Hey, this Look, is... I'm, one... I'm not watching that again, okay? This, this is one of Richard, those cases... I'm not, watching, I'm not watching it again, whatever happened. This is one of those cases where listening to this podcast will make a considerable time-saving. Yes. Perhaps the one and only occasion, but you can definitely save one hour and 50 minutes if you follow <laughs> our advice. Not particularly to pursue this unless you've got, you know... A third-year English literature project to write about it. What films have you got for us this time? Okay, for your consideration, I'm going to offer you Laura two Dern, movies. or a cow, or a rabbit. No. I'm going to offer you this turd. <laughs> See this turd? It can cut through cucumbers with ease. No, what am I going to do? Right, well, first of all, and I think you might have heard of this one. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm, yeah. I'm going to offer you Cloud Atlas. Have you heard of this one, Richard? It's Wachowski sisters ah, there we go. movie. It was. was sisters, yeah. It is a uh, an adaptation. 2013, it's, 2014. It's an adaptation of a novel, and I think it's a book by someone called David Mitchell. But it's not that David Mitchell. Okay, it's got great reviews, everybody. So do join us if you want to choose that one, Richard. However, on the other side, I'm going to give you a complete diversionary diversionary option here. And I'm going to give you something called Uncut Gems. Now, you might like this one because it's got your favourite actor in, Adam Sandler. No no way. No way. I hate Adam Sandler, Paul. Oh. This has got 9 out of 10 across all the meta sites. Like, people love it, Richard. But then people love Adam Sandler, don't they? Given the choice, it's got to be Cloud Atlas. Matu- I'm going to say Adam's matured so well. The Wachowskis behind the Matrix. Come on, Paul. It's a classic. Also, we loved Bound. So let's do Cloud Atlas. So, Richard, to confirm, it's Cloud Atlas, is that right? Cloud Atlas for next week. Until then, it's goodbye. As always. Ciao for now. See you in the next one.